I'm Ophira Eisberg from Ask Me Another. Every week we play nerdy games with contestants and celebrities. Hear Patrick Stewart dramatically read Taylor Swift lyrics or learn how many quills there are on a porcupine. Find Ask Me Another on the NPR One app or wherever you get podcasts. All right. Let's get up in your business. Vamonos, pues. Vamonos. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. So, Shireen, mm-hmm. a little while ago, a couple of us were sitting around talking about our love for advice columns, right? Because we're nosy, um, gossipy people. That's true. And we had this thought. We were talking about this. We had this thought. It was like, yo, what if we had our own advice column for Code Switch, like about race stuff? That's right. You know, some of our favorite Code Switch stories have actually come out of conversations we had about things that were going on in our very own lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the lives of our readers and listeners. Uh, remember racial imposter syndrome? Yep. I can't be the only one with racial imposter syndrome. So do you hear from other listeners who feel like fakes? That came from a listener question. Shout out to Christina. Shout out. And you're reporting on Puerto Rican identity in Holyoke, Massachusetts, the most Puerto Rican place in America, was based on some questions you had about your own, you know, identity. Do you feel American? Oh, man. Um, sometimes. Sometimes. Yes, my very confusing identity. <laughs> Constantly being confused. So um, a couple months ago, we put out a call to you. We did this officially mm-hmm. uh, to our audience. We said, hey, give us your best, hardest, most gut-wrenching questions about how to deal with racially uncomfortable situations. And ta-da, Ask Code Switch was born. Ta-da. We got <laughs> so many questions. About 200 of y'all have written in so far. We've gotten questions about your shady coworkers. And yeah. Shady. Everyone has shady coworkers. Uh, your interracial love triangles. The ethnically ambiguous guy you keep running into at the farmer's market. I'm sorry. There were not any inter... What did you call them? Interracial love triangles? triangles. Were there? I don't don't think so. But we are happy to answer those questions if you do write in with them. The more titillating, the better. (laughs) Rated R. Code switch. Shireen, the questions we did get were not cakewalks, though, right? No. No, no, no. And we've had some intense conversations offline about a couple of those questions already. Yes. And it makes sense. The world we're living in. We've got white supremacists rallying around the country, a president beefing with the NFL about how to protest racial injustice. All of this is happening at a time when, demographically speaking, the U.S. is the most racially diverse it's ever been. So that's confusing. Right. And so in addition to the stories in the headlines and in the news, there are these small personal questions. And that's sort of the general tenor of the questions we've been getting from y'all. So this week on the podcast, we thought we would take a few of those questions on. Mm Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, I thought we could maybe warm up with some, you know, some softball, some easy joints. Good. I need to warm up. I'm getting older. Got to stretch. <laughs> Got to stretch it out. <laughs> Limber up. Get Work up a lather. That's right. So these are some that I think might require like two or three word answers. Perfect. Hit me. All right. Here's a good one. Someone from Baltimore asked, can you still be woke and date a white person? Yes. Date who you want. Write us back if they do something awkward or racially insensitive Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you need us to help you figure out. Hopefully that won't happen. Uh, Speaking of which, this person from South Carolina writes, 
quote, my boyfriend is white and will not allow my black friends in his home where I live with my 11-year-old daughter. We are white as well, but do not judge people by the color of their skin. I have tried for six years to chip away at his bigotry and have had zero success. Is it time to move on and leave him? What do you think, Gene? This is a tough one. No, it's not actually. Leave him. Just leave him. Bye. It was six years. Come on, you know what it is. Bounce. To the left, to the left. Exactly. This is not This is not complicated. This is not hard. Yes, throw a house party. Invite all your friends. Play loud music. Black people music. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is black people music? I know, right? Mm. That's a whole other That's Ask Coast Switch mm. episode. Anyway, do we have more? Someone from L.A., in your neck of the woods in Los Angeles, said, quote, I believe all races are equal. I said this to my friend who said this was a racist statement. How is this statement racist? End what? <laughs> I, that statement is not racist. I don't, I don't even Unless I, I'm missing some context. Yeah, I think or, we are definitely missing context. No, not racist. Yeah, that, I, I, I co-signed that. Okay, thank you. All right, are you warmed up? You warmed up? You feel limbered up? You know me. I'm always a nervous wreck. Yeah. Right, I mean, well. I didn't take my beta blocker. <laughs> my, my doctor won't prescribe me Xanax. But we've brought a little backup to help us out to keep me calm. Our resident code switch advice expert who's written an etiquette book called Basic Black, Home Training for Modern Times. She also used to write an advice column for The Root. KGB. Karen Grigsby Bates, welcome to the show. Karen, you ready to get into some of these questions? I am. Okay, this first one is from a listener in Washington State. She's in the midst of planning a wedding, and it sounds like things have gotten a little tense, as these things often do. My name is Christy, and I am from South King County in Washington. So here's my dilemma. My fiancé and I are planning a wedding after dating for over four years and living together for most of that time. I'm a white female, and he's Filipino-American. Both our families have supported our relationship, except now that we're planning this wedding, There have been a lot of tensions regarding how to merge our cultures into a fun and meaningful ceremony and reception, particularly coming from my family. My family, despite its progressive tendencies and that essentially considers itself woke, believes that the bride's family should be the ones calling the shots, despite that paying for this wedding is not solely coming from them, but also from us and his side too, equally. Because a wedding is about an ongoing commitment and relationship, we thought it was important to make sure his culture was represented in ways that he thought meaningful, including having a prosperity or money dance. But because it involves money, my family sees it as tacky, roast pig or lechon, considered barbaric, and him wearing a barong, the traditional formal wear from the Philippines. Once it was said it's not formal enough, despite that our wedding style won't be a tux affair, But even if it were, the barong is still acceptable. Ultimately, for us, it's not about the wedding and a few hours with a roast pig, a barong, or dancing with dollar bills. It's about recognizing and validating his culture and traditions that, still long story short, we feel is being pushed aside or only being accepted on the other white family's terms when it suits them. Unfortunately, my folks now see me as one rejecting them and their culture. So my dilemma is, what do I do? How do I talk to my folks? Mm. Wow. I have so many <laughs> thoughts on this. Yeah. Okay. Christy, you are obviously stressed out, and I understand that because weddings and funerals are two of the most fraught occasions you'll ever have, ever. Um, the good news is you're having a wedding, not a funeral. That's great. <laughs> the bad news is the stress seems to be killing you. Um, you need to try to talk with your parents and tell them that you're 
including William's culture in the ceremony, not replacing theirs. He's not an orphan. You know, he comes with his own history and culture, and that should be included and honored. But here's the sticky part. If your parents are paying for part of your wedding, you have less leverage, or you feel you have less leverage. You need more leverage. After all, it's your wedding and William's. So you have a choice that might make you uncomfortable. Uh, You can have the dream wedding you're apparently planning that your parents are chipping in for, or you can scale down to what you and William can afford and do it your way. Include some Filipino traditions that are important to him and his family, as well as things that you and your parents love. Because, let's face it, your wedding is one day, you know, a few hours of one day. You'll be married to William for way longer, so choose the wedding ceremony that respects and includes him, and you'll have a way better chance of living happily ever after. And P.S., maybe he wears a suit to the wedding and his barong to the reception. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Shereen, I'm sorry. You, I'm... Had, you had opinions about... Oh, I have opinions. I think it's unfair that her family is kind of dominating this whole thing if it's supposed to be a blend of families and this is supposed to be a celebration of love between two people why does one family have to dominate over another there should be some sort of blending right and as as you said in the letter also like her parents are not footing the bill for the whole thing either right like it's they're splitting it so he and his family have veto power, right? I think her parents are not as woke as she thinks they are. And I think that this experience has made that painfully clear to her, that, that, that while, you know, superficially they're all fine with it, when it comes to tapping in what they see as their cultural prerogatives, they're not. Right. I mean, the ways that people sort of disparage wokeness is that it's performative, right? Like, it's like, oh, you say these things and you sort of virtue signal, like, I'm a good person. But this is where the rubber hits the road. Like, you're talking about another culture. And for reasons that are not clear, they're just trying to, you know, steamroll over any parts of his culture, right, as, as it comes to planning this wedding. You can't, you can't both argue that you're a, like, progressive person who cares about inclusive spaces and then say, in this space, where someone literally has the agency to shape their own wedding, that they should not be able to do that because you think what they like is tacky. Can I ask a question, though? Getting back to these traditions. Mm-hmm. If the family was also Filipino and said, hey, I think a money dance is tacky, would we be having this discussion? But it's different. Is it different because they're white and they say, I think the money dance is tacky? Well, not necessarily because they're white, but because they're from another culture that isn't Filipino. Mm -hmm. You know, they were black and bougie and saying, no, you aren't either. Um, That's pretty much the same thing. But I think she has a really clear choice, which is to say to her parents You know, if you feel this strongly about it, don't worry about it. We're not going to ask you to pay for anything. We'll take care of it, but we're going to make the wedding we want. And on that note, it's time for a break. When we come back, we're going to hear from a woman who worries about gentrifying her own culture. Stick with us. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air, cutting in for a moment to let you know about our three recent interviews about presidents. We have Hillary Clinton, Katie Turr, who covered the Trump campaign for NBC and MSNBC, and David Litt, who was a speechwriter for President Obama. You can find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Lyft, reminding listeners that they could be relaxing in a Lyft ride right now, listening to Beethoven or something. Lyft provides rides as relaxing as the buttery smooth voice of a public radio announcer. Lyft, it matters how you get there. Download and ride today. Support for Code Switch and the following message come from Squarespace. Get a unique domain and create a beautiful website using Squarespace's all-in-one platform and award-winning templates. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, ever. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code CODESWITCH for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. And we're back. You're listening to Code Switch. We're ready to take on a question that is near and dear to my heart. It's something I think about all the time. It comes from a listener from South Central L.A. who's currently living in New York City, and she has some thoughts about gentrification. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Maria Navarro. I'm Mexican-American, and now I attend a top private university in New York City. Gentrification is a huge concern of mine. And I often find myself easily condemning it when white people gentrify black and brown communities. However, I always wonder whether class plays a role in gentrification. When I see Mexican food being sold for four, sometimes five times the price in lower Manhattan, as compared to back home, I wonder if my eventual upward mobility will leave me in a position where I might be gentrifying. I know the effect poverty has on my community, and seeing that I grew up in poverty and am Mexican, am I gentrifying my own culture every time I pay $4 for a paleta de Jamaica? All right. Since the last thing she talked about was paletas, I, I want to address that <laughs> that point first. Discuss uh, what they are. Uh, paletas are popsicles, fruit popsicles, coconut popsicles. Like on a stick? Yes, they are on a stick. Are they good? They're delicious. You should try them. I'll pay and... $4 for one right now. So I didn't do it. <laughs> And it's New York City, you know, paleteros need to make a living. And if you're paying four bucks for a paleta, it's probably because actual gentrifiers have pushed up the rents. So that paletero needs to charge that much in order to make ends meet. So I don't think you're gentrifying your culture by paying four dollars for a paleta. But you asked a bigger question, which is, can you be a gentrifier? You are moving into the middle class now. You're getting your education. This is something that I've been reporting on because... I've been asking myself the same question. I am a person of color who moved into a predominantly African-American middle-class neighborhood, but I did buy my house for more than the person who sold it to me. And there are a lot of renters who live around me, and now their rents are going up because the housing prices are going up. Mm -hmm. I think you do... Yes, you can change. You can't do it by yourself. You can't change the neighborhood, but right. you can be a part of a wave of gentrification. But there are choices along the way. So my neighborhood has a farmer's market, mm -hmm. not too far from where you are. If I buy my lettuce and my arugula from the homeboys who actually have a farm in South Central, yeah. I'm helping to sustain that community. If I skip that because I want to sleep in and I go to Whole Foods and get it there... You know, it's still lettuce, it's still arugula, but it hasn't done anything for the community that's closer to me that actually grew this stuff and it hasn't put any money in their pockets and I had that option. Yeah, but that's like a that's a very individual thing and I feel like if we're if she really cared and she really wanted to do something to change things, you have to have an organized housing movement. You know, it's not just you may feel better not 
spending $4 on a paleta. But what does that do for the overall issue of gentrification? You know, there has to be something bigger than you, something organized. Well, here's where her education comes in. If she's at this high-priced private school in New York and she graduates and takes those skills back and does something for her community with them, whether or not she lives there, then she's contributing to the community. And I'd say she's not a gentrifier. Besides that point, and just to flip back over this, like there are all these ways in which it matters to be a middle-class person who's educated and who's a person of color who moves back into a community like this. Because the, like the advocacy that you bring to the school um, conversations, right, like as a, as a parent in the PTA, and some like street-level politics, that stuff is really important. And it's like really important that people are there to do that. Like, your relative, like, your social class in and of itself is not the problem. And just visually. You know, it's like if my kids can see that there's a lawyer that lives across the street from us who looks like them, that's important. Absolutely. And also, like, I think there's this way in which we, not just brown people, but, like, Americans sort of fetishize or romanticize what it's like to not have things like to to be like materially yes the people who are romanticizing that are usually people who have things absolutely. and don't have to live that absolutely way. which is my point right I so i grew up you know without a lot of i mean like the house literally next door to me in, in philly and south Florida grew up was abandoned right and so like i, I i'm not calling for gentrification right because i go home and my neighborhood has changed and i feel some type of way about that but like my life would have been materially like materially improved by the fact that i did not live next door to an abandoned building you know what i mean and like in all these ways and I think there's a like a way in which we and Shireen, you talk about this all the time, the way we talk about like authentic, like Black culture, authentic like uh, Mexican culture or Puerto Rican culture as like the 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 like the further you the more money you have the further you are from like the authentic part of it. But like even though obviously there's not nearly as many affluent people of color, especially Black and Latino people, as there are people who are in poverty, that's still part of the story. It's a hard question. This question is very. It's, it's messy, Layered. right? It's very messy. It's complicated. I mean, there's so many ways your class can be utilized to advocate for people in those communities. You know what I mean? Like, your yes. presence there, your Thank presence you there is not necessarily detrimental, right? You know? And that's like a really dangerous idea, I think. Well, and also it depends on whether or not you embrace the community. That's a huge you know, thing. If you, right. if you walk down the street and you never speak to anybody, mm-hmm. if you're still clutching your purse when you're, you know, walking past a group of kids that are playing hopscotch, I mean, it doesn't send a good message. But if you get to know your neighbors and, you know, you're part of the block club and you, you're you helping out, then I think it makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, don't act like a gentrifier. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you don't want to gentrify. Don't act like a gentrifier. There you go. All right, so we have one more letter, y'all. Before we get started on that one, we're going to bring in one more member of the Code Switch team. She hasn't written an advice book like Karen. But there's still time. There's still time. She's young. <laughs> uh, but she did write the advice column for our high school newspaper. What was your high school newspaper advice column called? It was called Ask Liesel. It was in the Radnor, right? <laughs> Leah's from Radnor, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Philly. I'm a claimer just because, you know, that's how we do. She's also been heading up the Ask Code Switch Advice column on the blog. It was her brainchild. So we're bringing in Leah Danella, who has not been on the podcast before, amazingly. Hey, Leah. What's hey, good? guys. Hey. Good to be here. All right. So this final question comes from Noelle in Roanoke, Virginia. She has a question about where to go to church. Here it is. My husband and I are white, and we have one biological child, a baby, who shares many of our physical features. We also have a four-year-old daughter whom we adopted who is black. 
I'm trying to surround our daughter with a multiracial community so she's less this one black person in a sea of white. That's a struggle in a city that's still pretty segregated. But my particular question is this, where should we go to church? We visited churches for a year when we moved to town, trying to find one that was racially and ethnically diverse, among a couple of other parameters we had. In the end, we settled on a congregation that is almost exclusively white, but it's very uncomfortable to me to be raising my daughter in a church where we can identify ourselves as we're that couple with a black daughter. Should we go to a predominantly black church, even though it's not in our comfort zone as far as worship style? Would that be pretending to be something we're not as a family? Would we even be welcome there, or would we be intruding on a precious time for people of color to be in a safe space? Are there ways leaders of our church can make our congregation more welcoming to people of color? Half the time I'm tempted to just start my own congregation because I can't seem to find one that looks like my family, much less like the diverse world we live in. Hmm. I have so many thoughts. Wow. Leah, let's, what, do you, what do you make of this? Well, I think that Noelle and her family have to go to a black church. Mm-hmm. And I think there are two reasons for that. Okay. Um, the first one is this. Their daughter is as she mentioned, is already the one black person in a sea of white. It sounds like in her neighborhood, which means the schools that she's going to go to in her extended family, um, she's always going to be the one black person. Mm -hmm. And as awkward as that is for her parents, it's going to be way, way more uncomfortable for her all the time. Yep. So she needs to be in a place where she can see other black people, where she's normal, where she doesn't stand out. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing. That's number one. Okay. Furious think, cosines. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. I think the second thing is that it's going to be really, really important for these parents to feel what it's like to be uncomfortable. Yes. Um, Absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I think the questions that Noelle is asking are really good questions. Like, do I belong? Will I feel like I'm intruding? Do the people here even want me here? And those are questions that her daughter is going to be thinking about almost all the time. Yep. So it's really important for her to also know what it feels like to have to ask those questions and to sometimes have answers that she's not going to like. Hmm. I talked to a woman named Beth Hall. She is the executive director of PACT, a multicultural adoption organization, and she's the author of a book about transracial adoption. She's also the white adoptive mother of a black son and a Latina daughter. And she told me a story that I wanted to share with you guys. My son was in, uh, you know, grade school or something. I live in Oakland, California, so I live in a pretty diverse place. That, um, but there's two baseball leagues here. I think it's still true. One sort of up in the hills, super nice fields, great uniforms, a lot of money, about 85% white. The other down in sort of the flats area of Oakland, less money, much more diverse, not so nice fields, definitely not so much money. So we had to make a choice, which which baseball league are we going to join, right? So we joined the one where there were more people of color because as white parents, we felt like this is what our son needs. I mean, we were often the only white people, adults in the stand, right, watching the game. We came to every game. But you know what? I never once felt anything but enormous gratitude because every time my son went up to bat, he wasn't a very good hitter. (laughs) Every time, the whole community would call out his name and encourage him 
and tell him he could do it and that they had his back. You're going to get it this time. We know. Come on, James. My son's name is James. You can do, you know, whatever it was. And I just watched his little body and his pride puff up at all that positive feedback. And, you know, whatever it was like for us, comfortable or not, people sitting next to us or not, who cares? And I know why most of the people were doing that. They weren't doing it because they felt like, oh, these are great people. We're going to love on their child. They were doing it for two reasons. They considered him one of their own, for which I am eternally grateful. And they felt sorry for him because he had white parents. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's all okay with me. They don't need to approve of what we've done or feel good about it or anything. They did exactly what I needed them to do, which is love on him. And that's what we white parents have to do. We have to be willing to go to places that may or may not make us feel uncomfortable and keep coming back, whether we're getting the welcome we're used to getting in other contexts or not, and recognize what it's doing for our kids. Yeah, it's funny listening to her say that because, like, these are the things that black parents think about their black children all the time. Like, how can I put my son and daughter in places that are affirming, in a world that it will not generally be affirming to them, right? Yeah, one of the other things Beth was was telling me was that kids start to notice these racial situations they're put in really, really early. I mean, studies have shown that as early as, like, 15 months, kids are already seeing racial differences and making choices based on how they're categorizing people. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you can pretend they're not there or or kind of like avoid them you have to start thinking about them right away Mm -hmm. i have a nagging sinking suspicion shereen that we're going to hear from a lot of kids who were uh transracial adoptees Mm -hmm. they're going to have some very strong feelings about this um so please holler at us at coastwitch at npr.org i think that's it i think i think we're done for now look we Uh, solved all of your problems race is solved chapel and we're gonna get married going to the chapel and we're gonna get married uh mike is being dropped (laughs) as we speak we fix race no seriously if you have any burning questions about race in your life fear not each week we're going to be answering a new question on the blog you can submit them by writing to us at codeswitch at npr.org or by filling out the Google form we have posted on our website. Karen, while you're still here with us, do you have a song that's giving you life this week? I'm still thinking about Christy and the wedding, so I'm mm-hmm. thinking about the Dixie Cups singing, going to the chapel and we're going to get married. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. It's got such a good beat and it's such an upbeat song. And I hope, Christy, that you can sing that song as you trip down the aisle and that you're excited about getting married and that all this stuff gets ironed out and is behind you soon. And he's wearing a baron. <laughs> yeah, at least, at least for the reception. <laughs> and if her parents don't want that lechon, she can send it to us. Oh, yes. Most Glad definitely. Lechon sandwiches, here we come. Lechon tastes good. That is our show, y'all. Follow us on Twitter, please. We're at NPR Code Switch. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Leah Danella produced this episode with help from our intern, Nana Boate. We had original music by Ramteen Arablui. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. 
Karen Grisby-Bates, who you just heard, Adrian Florido, Kat Chow, and Maria Paz Gutierrez. And Walter Ray Watson. Our editors are Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. I'm Shreen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Peace. What's good, y'all? So Code Switch is getting out of the studio and in front of a live audience where y'all need to be on October 6th. That's next week. We'll be at the Skirball Cultural Center in Los Angeles. It'll be Adrian, Karen, and me with a special guest. It's a secret. We can't tell you who. Go to nprpresents.org to purchase tickets. Come out and kick it with us.